1: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Jazakallah khair for joining us today on Thought Adventure Podcast on an incredibly important and obviously timely topic in terms of what's occurring in Gaza, uh, the attacks that have taken place, uh, the bombings, the potential for. Um, The potential for what? For ground invasion, subhanAllah, and the calls by the Zionist entity for 1.1 million people to move from the north of Gaza all the way to the south. Uh, So alhamdulillah, this is a really important topic, discussion uh, that we're going to have today. Uh, Inshallah, um, some of the other brothers may join, uh, the co-host Jake and Abdurrahman and Yusuf, uh, but this discussion today is going to be a presentation, not given by myself, uh, but by an honored uh, guest who has a particular area of expertise in this. He's going to be uh, presenting uh, a proper presentation. And I want people to be mindful, be clear. And I think, to be honest, if it's a case of taking notes, take notes. If it's a case of watching it again, please watch it again. Why? Because there is... um, There is a propaganda war that's taking place against the Muslims and against the people of Palestine. So many arguments have been presented. So many different frameworks and narratives have been pushed. And if we as Muslims don't have the ability to articulate the response in the correct and informed way, we'll do more damage uh, than good. So this is why we've asked uh, our brother, Dr. Abdul Wahid, uh, to come and present. He's presented this before on, uh, well, similar presentations before on other podcasts or YouTube channels, but here he's tailored it, inshallah, for us to discuss about Zayn, uh, Zionism unveiled. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum
0: assalam salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sharif and brothers and sisters watching.
1: So just, you know, before we get into the, the whole discussion, the topic, you know, I, I want people to like really appreciate that. If we're not informed uh about this topic, about how Zionism came about, about the colonialist agenda for the creation of, the, uh, of Zionism and also creation of Israel, how Israel came about, what happened to the Palestinians. If we don't if we don't know about this how effective can we be in terms of addressing the current political realities today
0: um, we, we will be much less effective um, we're much less effective in many ways you will find quite a lot of Zionists know some details and they present their arguments in a certain way and that is can confuse people if you're debating with them. Um, but I think probably where it's most useful is that there is a massive audience out there of people who are, who are just assume this is one of the same old problems in the East where people are just fighting each other. This evening on BBC News, uh, one of the reporters, he described what's happening. There's the age old conflict or this ancient conflict mm-hmm. And that was just frankly false, it's fake, yeah? That's just not true, it's not ancient, it's not age old, okay? There's a, there's a quite recent um, series of events, you're talking decades, 100 years, kind of that sort of time scale. Um, and it's a lot to try and understand, it's not it's quite complex. And, and I think my aim today, Sharif, for the audience, is to to set um some of the information information in a in a narrative mm. that should make sense to people and I think when I present one thing you can do very helpfully and the other presenters if they come in is to if the narrative isn't clear and if the information I'm given doesn't fit the narrative or or, or conflicts with something else you guys know or have heard, tell me and we'll take it back on track and I'm pretty sure yeah. although in an hour, an hour and a half, you cannot present 100 years of history, yeah? Um, Particularly, it's very complex history, but I'm pretty confident that the argument I present there is robust enough to stand up to other historical bits of information which I haven't included. Um, And the key thing here, uh, brothers and sisters watching, is I hope this will help us to help the Muslims in Palestine today, right? So I will be bringing up not just ancient history, not just old things, 100-year-old stuff. I'll actually, one of the reasons I'll bring bring this stuff up is so that we understand some things that are going on today and actually look forward to a better future.
1: Yeah, Jezak and I think that's a really important point because a lot of people seem to think this is some intractable, always occurring problem that's taken place uh, within Palestine you know, there's always conflicts between Muslims and Jews. Uh, and so it's just something that we'll never be able to solve. Um, but I think, inshallah, with your presentation, you you can explain properly how to frame it, how to understand it. And like I said, I think this is really important because as Muslims, we're not just people who are just going to react to things. If we understand deeply our history and, and the political reality today, we have a better, more effective, uh, robust way to address some of the issues. So inshallah, we'll, we'll quickly... Um, uh, just go into the presentation, then uh, shall I just add it onto the screen for you, Abdul Yeah,
0: yeah, do okay. Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. So, you titled this episode Zionism Unveiled. Um, I think that's a really good way to get viewers in, uh, Sharif. I, I had prepared actually something a bit drier, yeah, Palestine between Zionism and colonialism. And the reason for this, guys, is this. What our brothers and sisters in Palestine are facing today are two political forces that are trying to dominate the region. And they overlap. And they've worked in synergy sometimes. And sometimes they clash. And one force is the force known as Zionism. And one is actually what I call colonialism. So how would I define those two? One is a political force that wants a nationalistic homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. And the other is Western powers, originally Britain, France, later the United States and all their allies in the West that want secular, Western, capitalist, colonial entity in the Muslim world to achieve their interest. Because that part of the world, the Middle East, it's the crossroads for everything, it really is crucial for any great power in the world to dominate that. So they want their colony in that region. And that's really what my thesis is gonna present to you today. So we're gonna go through a little bit about what happened in Palestine, why it's come about these two overlapping and sometimes conflicting agendas, uh, sometimes overlapping, sometimes conflicting, uh, how it's all come about, Actually, the role of Muslim rulers in the region is really important to understand, both in terms of the problem and in terms of how we get to a solution. And a little bit about present or recent reality uh, and the uh, future for Palestine, inshallah. So let's go back about 109 years to the beginning of World War I. There isn't a country called Palestine. There isn't a nation state called Palestine because actually this part of the world, we didn't do nation states. right? We had an Islamic state, we had the Ottoman state. It was not a state defined by people's race, nationality or tribe. It was a state defined by Islam and citizens of that state were Muslim and non-Muslim and they were ruled by Islam. And what is called Palestine, just like the rest of Bilal Dusham, what's called Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, all of this area was part of the Ottoman Khilafah, the Ottoman state, okay? So until World War I, if you looked on a map, they might have a district or a region called Palestine because that linked to a historic term or Transjordan, but there were no countries there like that, but there were Palestinian people. So lie number one, is the lie that there were no people there, that there was no Palestine. This is an absolute lie. There were Palestinian people there, Arabs, Muslim and Christian, who lived in that land, who farmed that land, who nurtured that land for centuries. Actually, their ancestry is probably mixed. Some of their ancestors might have been Jews who became Muslim. Some of their ancestors might have been uh, from the Roman times. Some of their ancestors might even have predated when the Jews came. So they could be from the Canaanite people or the Philistine people that predated even the arrival of Bani Israel to that region. Okay, so uh, there's the lie there that there was nobody in this land. Uh, and there's a misinformation that there's no state of Palestine because, they, we, as I say, we didn't do nation states. This was part of the Ottoman state. We'll go into detail a bit later about that. And this is a very familiar diagram, or many of you have seen it before. So 19, you, you know, know your history, 1914 to 1918 was World War One. So the Ottoman state was involved in World War I, and the most extreme diagram on the left, shows that what happened at the end of World War One, and Britain and France carved up the Middle East between them, you know, France took Syria, Lebanon, Britain took uh, Jordan and Palestine, right? And uh, they put proxies into these countries as their rulers, but um, the Palestine area, Britain directly governed it. And this was the territory which was called Palestine then. So even if there wasn't a country of Palestine before 1918, it was part of the Ottoman state. Actually, it was called Palestine from that moment onwards. Same people lived there.
1: And it just this just, shows. Right. Just, yeah. So Abdul, I just wanted to also just to emphasize this point because. One, as you mentioned, one of the Zionist lies is to say there was no Palestinian state. Yeah. And it's a technicality that they're trying to use to obfuscate the fact that there were people there. They lived there. Yeah. The vast majority of the people that were living on that land were Palestinians, mainly Muslims, but there were Jews and Christians as well. And so that green doesn't represent or the is it? So the yellow, sorry, the yellow yellow, doesn't represent a state. It represents people, doesn't it? That's the thing. It does. It
0: it represents villages and farms and cities and uh, a great history of a very dignified people in that region. Uh, And prior to 1917, it was Ottoman. And uh, after 1917, it came under the British until 1946, 1946, 1947, you can see these 3x3 slides are effectively going between 1946 and 1949, right? And something very dramatic is changing in that time. The green enclaves are the areas which were given over to the Zionist people. And you can see what's happened between 46 and 47. 46, this is the areas which, under British mandate Palestine, the Jewish people were given. The UN proposed this third map here, which, frankly, apart from the shocking amount of green that they've suddenly given and taken away from the Palestinian people, apart from that, it's a crazy idea and a plan set up to fail that you could have a state of like this yellow one and this green one. That is that is a classic divide and rule type of tactic that the colonialists have used all around the world, which leaves a mess in place yeah, uh, to, to produce war and conflict. Um, the next slide, the next picture represents what happened after the first clashes between the Arabs and the Zionists. And subsequently over the years, as we will see in our tragic story, More and more of the land which was once Palestine, for the Palestinian people, has been taken away and shrunk. This small yellow strip in the last few slides is Gaza, where all our attention and prayers are today. And this balkanized area here, which looks like an archipelago, you know, those islands in the seas that are all like scattered around and broken up, is what's called the West Bank. Uh, and that doesn't even actually have cohesiveness to it anyway. So this is just an overview, just to remind us where we're at. Ilan Pape is a professor. He lives in the Zionist occupation. He teaches there. He's one of an unusual, one of the unusual very honest and just voices about history who wrote a book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine and he describes it as a very deliberate thing. So this is not something that there's been conflict for the last 75 to 100 years and it's produced a demographic change, no. According to Ilan Pape, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine was a systematic and comprehensive process that he says began in 1948 and continues to today. And it's a continuation of a process of colonization that began in the late 19th century. So there's a process of colonization that started at the end of the 1800s, and there's uh, an actual active process of um, uh, ethnic cleansing from 1948 onwards. So 1948 is the year that everything changed. The British Mandate ended The Zionists declared their state they called Israel, uh, which is really an occupation. That was the year. So before that, there was a process of colonization. And after that, he says, there's a process of ethnic cleansing. And I I chose this quote. Why? Because when you guys see today this idea that one million Palestinians have to move from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south, You need to view that in the context of this ethnic cleansing. For me, that is just ethnic cleansing of Gaza, a continuation of what's happened in the last 75 years. No question about it. Nothing to do with the warning, nothing to do with the war. It's become an excuse just to shift those people out of that area uh, with an intention of taking it over in the long run. So I talked about why this has happened. And I said, look, there are two overlapping agendas, uh, Zionism and colonialism. And we're gonna describe really how this applies to Palestine. So Zionism is a political philosophy, right? So brothers and sisters, this is politics. This is not religion. Trust me, if you didn't know, and most of you will know, I'm sure, this is not about Jews and Muslims. This is about political philosophy by secular people, secular Jews who actually were not very religious in Europe, who had this idea of a Jewish homeland for the Jewish diaspora. So obviously, Jews, Bani Israel, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala settled them in the Holy Land uh, many, many years ago. And From a religious perspective, we believe that uh, through various disobedience to Allah and the prophets that Allah sent, they were scattered from that land as a a punishment. And actually, the Jews believe that themselves religiously. They believe they live in a diaspora. They live scattered around the world, Um, as one rabbi once told me, um, to live in exile in humility for errors that they made. Historically, effectively, when they lived there, you, you had invasions from outside most in the end, the last most dramatic being by the Romans, which effectively eradicated uh, a Jewish presence from Palestine and the Holy Land in any great numbers. And uh, actually, Jews really only started coming back during the time that the Muslims opened that land after the Khilafah. So uh, they were expelled. They're living in many, many parts of the world. Many of them were living in the Khilafah, in the Muslim lands, in Iraq, in Syria, in uh, Morocco. Uh, many parts of the Muslim world settled Jewish communities in Andalusia, under, under, under Islam in Spain. Uh, but many were living in, in Europe and, and Britain and, and Eastern Europe and Russia as well. Uh, so they were scattered around. So the the Zionism was a political project started in the late 1800s, about 1880s. And um, these are the these are two of the key figures. Um, The one on the left is Theodor Herzl, who was the founder of this movement. He was a journalist in Vienna. And the one on the right is Chaim Weizmann. Uh, Herzl is really the father of this movement. And um, In the 1880s, he started it. He held the world, the first World Zionist Congress in, I think, Switzerland in 1897. Um, And uh, he died in the early 20th century. Weizmann, the guy on the right, is uh, the guy who effectively lobbied most effectively to get what was later called the Balfour Declaration, which we'll talk about. This is a really important slide. It's quite busy, and I'll talk you through it. But it kind of gives you some background as to why Jews like Herzl wanted a homeland somewhere. All right. Um, and by the way, Palestine was not their only option. All right. Um, Herzl himself, in the early 1900s, came to Britain, and he found people listening to him here and. One uh, famous British politician, I think Joseph Chamberlain, uh, who was, I think, a former prime minister, offered him an area of Uganda. Okay. Um, And later on, uh, there was an offer of uh, land in, uh, uh, it's called Andinia, Andinia, which is in Argentina, in that area. OK, so he was open. The Zionist movement was open to a homeland somewhere. But Palestine was their preferred choice. All right. This is about the persecution of Jews in Europe. And this is way before World War One. Uh, World War Two. Sorry. All right.
1: So just you really, Abdu'l-Wahid, yeah. sorry, just to uh, yeah. forgive me, but I just wanted to make this point because Some people think, well, because I used to think this, I thought, why would they, Uganda and South America, why would these be options? But it's what you mentioned at the beginning, because you said that they were scattered. They believed, their religious beliefs, Jews believed that they were scattered. They weren't allowed to return back to Palestine or Israel, as they like to call it, because it was forbidden for them to establish a land there. So that's why they were open to other, other lands. Another area. Uh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, bear in mind, these guys are not religious. Herzl and Weizmann were really not religious people. But th- this is a group of very ultra orthodox religious Jews who, to this day, believe it is a huge heresy and sin in their religion to politically manipulate a migration back to Palestine, right? That they're in their religious belief, um, they will only go back to Palestine when Allah decrees it, when God decrees it. Because you know, one of the doctrinal errors of Judaism is that they rejected Isa alayhi salam as the as the Masih, as the Messiah. All right. So their belief is that they're still waiting for a Messiah, and their trip back to Palestine will happen when their Messiah comes. Okay, Um, so they they are this group of Jews actually, but believes it's wrong for there to be a quote unquote state of Israel. They believe it's wrong. They believe it's a sin. Okay, and actually, their view was dominant amongst religious Jews right up until 1948. Right, right up until actually World War Two and, and the, the, the increase in persecution of Jews in World War II. But we're talking about World War I and before World War I. So at the bottom left-hand corner, you have images of Jewish refugees who were victims of pogroms in Russia and Eastern Europe. So they were like literally mobs would come and drive them out and persecute them. So they would flee from Eastern Europe to Western Europe to try and find refuge. The image at the top, you can't see it, but it says the Alien Act of 1905. The Aliens Act was a law passed in Britain, all right, not by Nigel Farage, not by Suella Braverman, but by none other than Arthur Balfour, who was once a British prime minister, And in nineteen oh five, he passed this law, his government passed this law, which was trying to restrict Jews coming from Europe who had been persecuted, trying to stop mass migration of Jews coming into the UK. Some things in the UK don't change, do they very much? Okay. There's a book title here, The Alien Jew in British in the British Imagination between 1881 and 1905. So really topical book, yeah. Not written by Douglas Murray or anyone like that, written by somebody else, right? Um, You've got uh, up here, a public demonstration, the British Brothers League, uh, uh, which is uh, concerned about the further immigration of destitute foreigners, 1902, okay? That's the climate in the UK, pretty hostile to Jews who have been treated even more hostile in Eastern Europe and then you've got in the early late 1800s, early 1900s, a very very famous incident in France called the Dreyfus case. Now um, this is a, a French soldier who was accused of spying for the Germans. Okay, so the Br- France Germany hostile to each other, and Dreyfus Alfred Dreyfus he's a he's a soldier in in the French army. And he's accused of spying for the Germans, and he's got a very public, humiliating uh, dressing down when he's found guilty, and a lot of it is uh, uh, associated with the fact that he's a Jew and the fact that he is not to be trusted, and the fact that he is not really properly French and not really loyal and in truth, over a, a series of years and some investigations by some other French soldiers, effectively they uncovered that they'd got the wrong man. And the senior French command knew that it was the wrong man, even when they convicted him. And even when it was brought to their attention that there had been a mistrial, they covered it up, mainly because of his Judaism. And, and that you know, the if you look at the British media this week about Muslims, about Palestinians, about that kind of media stuff, imagine that in the early part of the 1900s in France about Jews. Anyone who supported Dreyfus was considered to be like a traitor and, and either a Jew or a Jew lover. That's the kind of language they would use, right? Uh, but after some years, it came out very publicly that Dreyfus was an innocent man. He'd been sent to this French penal colony called Devil's Island, and um, really, like badly, like quite a Guantanamo-type scenario. When he came back, people were shocked at how physically changed he was and stuff. Um, and uh, he was he was exonerated. But the case had shockwaves around Europe at that time. Okay, so this is the kind of uh uh the kind of like climate in europe that these guys were kind of thinking okay you know what we want a homeland so that that kind of explains some of the psyche to you of why zionists want a secure homeland and why might maybe so many jewish people who support uh, uh the zionist occupation of palestine kind of think that if they didn't have somewhere safe to go they'd be in, in trouble but It was by no means just for uh, Palestine that they were after. It was a homeland. Like I say, it really isn't religious. So there are Jews who are not Zionists, and there are many Zionists, in fact, specifically in America, who are Christian Zionists, or neocon Zionists, yeah, political Zionists, who are not even Jews, right? They support a Jewish homeland in Palestine, right, even though they're not Jewish, yeah? So... This is a political problem, not a religious problem. Herzl, in 1896, went to the Ottoman khalifa, the Ottoman Caliph Sultan Abdul Hamid. And at that stage in the life of the khalifa, they were in huge debt. And Herzl had many contacts amongst great Jewish financiers and backers. And he went to the Sultan and he basically offered him money to buy land in Palestine so that Jews could come there and settle all right and this was the famous response from Sultan Abdul Hamid I will not sell a single inch of the country because it's not mine it belongs to all the Muslims they paid for this with their blood and we will redeem it with our blood let the Jews keep their millions if the Khilafah is partitioned they will get Palestine for free that will happen over our dead bodies. He, he understood this is not his land to surrender. Okay? Um, actually the Ottomans, they did allow Jewish migration from Europe to the Ottoman state. Uh, most famously after the, uh, the fall of Andalusia and the Umayyad uh, Sultanate in, in Andalusia in, in 1492 when Granada fell, most famously, the, 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 the Jews and Muslims who they were they were given three choices, weren't they? They could either die or convert or migrate. Right. And, and those that left, they came to the uh, Khilafah and the, the Khalifa at the time. He said, you know, um, Europe's loss is the Muslim world's gain. And he gave the Jews refuge then. Um, but even right up until the 1800s, 1900s, the Ottoman khalifas, they allowed Jews to come. Uh, Abdul Hamid was very politically astute. Um, he did not believe it was right to have a, a concentration of uh, one group of migrants into one area. He knew that that, would, that political dynamic would be dangerous. So he, whilst he allowed migration, he advised that these people settling should be settling in different, different places.
1: Yeah, I think some people, they, they argue, isn't it, or they state that Sultan Abd al-Hamid II was aware of the political designs that they had for Palestine. And so it wasn't just a simple transaction they were asking for to buy some land, even if the land was uninhabited. Certain aspects of the land was uninhabited, maybe. But the issue was, was that they, he was aware that they wanted to change the demographics of the land in order Absolutely. to justify uh, a creation of their own state within the heart of Absolutely. the Muslim Ummah.
0: Absolutely. So he, 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 whilst he as a statesman and as the representative of the Muslims who are the best Ummah, كنتم wa billah. بِاللَّهِ enjoy good and you forbid evil. Well, when we had a khalifa the Khalifa's job was to enjoin good and forbid evil on the world stage. And if there's a population of people who are being persecuted in one part of the world, you can understand the motivation of trying to help them and give them some refuge. At the same time, he's very politically astute. He is aware that by this stage, Herzl and later Weizmann are going to Britain in particular, they went to Britain, France, USA, many places, but actually by this stage, it's very clear they're going to Britain as well as coming to visit him. So uh, they they are lobbying in Britain and their voice is being heard here. Um, and um, I put here, right, um, that they, they knew what they wanted. They wanted a land for themselves, which they ruled ideally in Palestine, some were pragmatic. They were willing to do deals with the British or the French or whoever they would have a deal with, gradualists, you can say. And some became quite radical. They were, they were like, they, weren't, they didn't wanna be anyone's, uh, anyone's puppet, right? Um, so some, some were willing to say to the British, yeah, we'll, we'll just settle us in Palestine and of course, we will be cooperative with you as a stepping stone to getting what they wanted. And some were like, no, we want it. That's our right and quite radical about it. And we'll see this play out later on. And By the way, that reality plays out today when they talk about within, quote, unquote, Israel, so-called Israel today, the political left and right, left wing and right wing. You kind of, They're all Zionists. They all want the whole land. They don't want to be anyone's colonial puppet. But some of them are, much more radical about it than others. Some are more linked to play ball and give and take with their Western backers. So that is the first force that is trying to get their foot in the door in Palestine. And the second force, which is, as I say, overlapping, synergistic, but also coming to conflict with it at some points, is the colonialists. And we're going to talk about that now. Yeah, is that okay? We move on.
1: Yeah, I'm doing that. So this is the same
0: Balfour that we talked about, who signed this Alien Act in 1905, who, in when he was Prime Minister, uh, which was trying to stop persecuted Jews from Eastern Europe coming to Britain. Not a very nice man.
1: So he was an anti-Semite.
0: Uh, so I think he was an anti-Semite, yeah? but I, I, I've actually met people who are related to his extended family because. Balfour was from, uh, there's a very famous family in Britain called the Cecil family, yeah, C-E-C-I-L, okay. Um, His ancestor um, was Queen Elizabeth I's main chief advisor, okay, and ever since that time, the Cecil families have been kind of like linked intimately with British politics, and there are many Cecils who've been uh, prime ministers of Britain, Uh, over the years, or or senior people. So Balfour was from the Cecil family. I've met somebody who's a journalist, actually, who's from that family, and he says in their family, they all debate whether or not he was an anti-Semite or not. Most of them say they don't think he was, yeah? But I I have to say to him, I mean, look, he's like, if you you understand what happens here, you'll you'll realise that I think this guy pretty much was an anti-Semite, to be honest with you. He's trying to stop persecuted Jews from migrating to Britain, coming in as refugees in 1905. In 1917, he's foreign minister. It's World War I. David Lloyd George is prime minister. He's a Christian evangelist, by the way. He hates Muslims and Turks, Lloyd George. okay. Mark Sykes, Sir Mark Sykes of sykes Pico, which we'll talk about later, is a foreign office diplomat. Balfour is foreign secretary. And Weizmann has really had a good relationship with Sykes. And Sykes has sold Weizmann's vision to the rest of the cabinet. And by 1917, uh, Britain is not doing as well as it thought it would in the war. Okay, When they went into World War II in 1914, they thought it would be a done deal in about a year. They all thought the Ottomans would be finished in about six months. And three years later, they're in a stalemate, both in Europe and in the East, with the with the front with the Ottomans. And by 1917, Britain's allies in the war are who? They're France and Russia. What happened in 1917 in Russia, Sharif?
1: Communist revolution.
0: Communist revolution. Yeah, the Bolshevik revolution. So you suddenly got change of government. Middle way through this war, you got change of government in Russia. Right. And uh so Britain is by this stage not confident that it can win the war, and it's got some back back, um backroom discussions happening with the Ottomans about how maybe they can have a ceasefire, and at the same time, it's promising the Zionists a homeland in Palestine, and in the hope of these British politicians was the Zionists will win American support to enter into the war. Okay, they, this is their hope. Their hope is if they promise the Zionists Palestine, the Zionists will use their influence to uh, win America into the war. Now, this is actually, uh, if you ask people today, if you say, oh, Jews control the world, Jews are all powerful, Jewish financiers, they have influence over politicians, They'll they'll say that's anti-Semitic, right? But that was genuinely the belief of these British cabinet ministers. They believed that the wealthy Jews controlled everything, and they would be able to influence the Americans. Okay, so that was their that was actually their belief. So this is another anti-Semitic mark against Rothschild, against Balfour. So we'll just quickly read this, just in case anyone doesn't know it. Yeah, it's addressed to Lord Rothschild, nineteen seventeen. I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of his majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. And this is the statement, his majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective. It being clearly understood, that nothing shall be done that may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I'll be grateful if you bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation, okay? Um, He's promised somebody else's land to a people that don't live there. To a third party, effectively, he promised something which wasn't his to give to a third party. He acknowledges in this there are people living there, because he says that nothing should be done that may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities. He acknowledges there are people there, um, but he's promising that as a homeland.
1: And um, part of the, so just otherwise, and part yeah, of the reason yeah. for this. Is they're trying, according to what you're saying, is they're trying to curry favor from the Americans? Because if they're going to give a homeland to the Jews, the Americans might come on the side of a, uh, of Britain and France, because at that time they weren't involved in the First World War. They they came were in not in 1917. That's right. Yeah, so and, they and, came and in. The not.
0: And the war had been going on by this stage for three years. Like so many people had died. Yeah, it was just a bloodbath, and for no good reason. I mean, this was just like an imperial war where they're just fighting over land, influence, power. It's not. This is not any for, war of morality, basically. Which is no, they're not fighting for freedom, or they're not fighting for like uh, you know because the other side is evil. The other side is the same as them, basically. All the same. Yeah all the same religion, all the same culture, all the same philosophy, all the same secular belief. The other side's the same as them. Even their royal families were related, basically. It's Mm -hmm. like not... No. Um, The the tragic picture on the right is just a few weeks after this, just a few weeks after the Balfour Declaration, is uh, General Allenby entering into the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem, because by this stage... Britain has managed to actually invade and take over Jerusalem for the first time since Salahuddin liberated it. Uh, An army of non-Muslims has come in and taken over Jerusalem. Uh, And that just happened in December 1917. All right. So just a few weeks later, it was so thick. I mean, uh, sick meaning bad, sick, disgusting. Um, uh, Lloyd George, he said this was a Christmas present for the British people. Yeah? He was over the moon. It was like, oh, you know, we've got, we, we've got our revenge on Salahuddin. That was the kind of attitude that they had, yeah, that they felt Jerusalem should be theirs. So all of that happened in World War I, 1914 to 1918. And it's really important to understand World War I because the establishment of the, Zion- the occupation of Palestine started in 1917 so here's another lesson sharif when people talk about 1948 that is not when palestine was occupied palestine was occupied in 1917 right i don't want to go back to 1948 borders i want to go back to 1917 all right that is we we sh- we as muslims should be clear about that there is this is started before the zionist occupation began This is a British colonial occupation by the Western powers in Palestine, starts in 1917. And it's part of a wider plan. It's part of a plan to occupy, divide up, and control the Middle East and destroy the Khilafah in the process, all right? You have to understand that Britain The jewel in Britain's crown at this time was India, and the route to India was either through the Middle East by land, or it could be later on through the Suez Canal, uh, going through Suez and the Red Sea, and going around through the Indian Ocean. Nonetheless, it was crucial, and they really feared that a rising Germany or a before that even napoleon like napoleon went to egypt didn't he and the british feared that he would end up in india so their desire was to control this region for themselves um, and over many years before world war one they were involved in intrigues and sedition within the uthmani khilafah and uh, also trying to sow the seeds of uh uh, of re- rebellion in the Balkans and in East Europe and stuff, uh, and World War One breaks out, and Sir Henry McMahon, who's a Foreign Office guy, he starts a correspondence with this man here, who is called Sharif Hussein. Sharif Hussein is uh, the leader of the. He's the representative leader of the Ottoman Khalifa in Mecca. He's the governor of Mecca and Medina and that area of hijaz Okay. Uh, he had a very good relationship with Abdul Hamid and the Ottomans, but actually had a very bad relationship with the Young Turks. So war's broken out, Britain's declared war on the Ottoman Khilafah. The Ottoman Khilafah has allied with Germany. And McMahon starts a correspondence with Sharif Hussein. Promising him all sorts. And effectively, he wants him to become a rebel and revolt against the Ottoman Khilafah, opening up another front. So you've got the front in Europe, you've got a front in North Africa, you've got the Russians and the British actually actively fighting in Turkey. And what the British wanted was that Sharif Hussein in the Hejaz would start another front against the Occup- Ottomans, which would keep them occupied in that area. Okay. Uh, And that he did. Uh, He's such a crafty man that at one stage he was taking money from the Ottomans and the British at the same time, basically. Um, And I think it might have been somebody else as well. I've forgotten who, but he was kind of like trying to get money all round. Okay. Uh, But he's the guy who allied with Lawrence of Arabia, famous influence Lawrence of Arabia. If anyone's seen the movie, about the life of Lawrence. He, Sharif Hussein is the guy that he allied with. So he started the so-called Arab Revolt. And this is one of the other sickening things. that Arab nationalism, you know, it was, a, it was a small entity at this time, but these guys made it into something more. It was all about anti-Turk kind of nationalism. So they were feeding off the anti-Turk sentiment and trying to create this fitna in Hijaz. So, sadly, due to him weakening the Ottoman defences, by 1917, uh, the Ottomans lost Jerusalem, they lost Damascus, Damascus, they lost Baghdad, uh, and they lost Medina as well. They had Medina up till that point as well, and they lost Medina, and uh, it was due to the treachery of this man. In secret, now Hussein, as well as being a traitor, was very politically gullible. Uh, Because the British convinced him that when the war's over, they'll make him the Khalifa or they'll make him in charge of all these Arab lands. So he was expecting to be the ruler of Damascus and the ruler of Baghdad and the ruler of Jordan and Palestine and the whole of the Hejaz, right? He was expecting all of that. But actually, in secret, unbeknown to him, Britain and France had carved up the Middle East in 1916. They basically said, look, we'll take a line from roughly here. They said the C C in the word Acre to the L in the word Mosul. We'll draw a line and roughly speaking, everything north of that line will be French and everything south of that line after the war will be British. The British shifted that line quite a lot because there was quite a lot of oil in the north of Iraq in those days, they discovered. So they were very keen that they would take Mosul. Uh, They also, uh, Palestine, you can see here in purple, was meant to be under international control, but the British managed to manoeuvre it so they would get that. And actually, after the war, initially British took over Syria and the French had to kind of like Boot them out, basically, okay? Um, but this is they carved it up in 1917, unbeknown to Sharif Hussein. So the idea was, let's occupy the land in the war militarily. When we finish the war, we'll divide it up with these straight-line borders, artificial borders. We'll call one country Syria, one Lebanon, one Palestine, one Jordan, one Iraq, uh, and then Saudi Arabia, yeah? Uh, and these we'll call these all these give them all these names. We'll put. Excuse me. Can you hear me?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, fine. Hamdulillah.
0: Yeah. Can
1: yeah, you yeah. hear me? All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: fine. Yeah. Um, I'm talking so much, my earpiece fell out. <laughs> uh, so, so they divided all up. They put their proxy rulers in, right? And they literally are proxy rulers. I mean, after the war, Sharif Hussein had three sons, and they gave one of them. Iraq, one of them. Jordan, actually, they gave one of them, and one of them. Uh, let me get this right. They gave one of them. Uh, Syria, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, one Syria, but then the French weren't happy with him, so they booted him out, and they gave him Iraq. And yeah. They gave one Egypt. They gave one Egypt, and they gave one Jordan. Okay. Uh, and he wanted Sharif Hussein wanted uh, the Hijaz as well, but uh, no, they gave that to the Al Saud family. All right. And in in Syria and in Lebanon, the French put their own people in who they trusted as their agents and proxies in the region. OK, so ever since that time till today, uh, these lands have been divided and we've never really had what you could call representative rule. Uh, It's all artificial divisions. They were once one land, they were once all Ottomans, they were once all Muslims, they were once all citizens of the Khilafah, even if they're non-Muslim, they were citizens of the Khilafah, right? Um, And so this was plan number two. And plan number three in the war was to weaken the Ottoman state so much that at the end of the war, they would be able to squeeze what was left and establish a secular nation state of Turkey abolish the caliphate, which happened in 1924, just 99 years ago, and uh, and weaken it so that it was no longer an influence. And in fact, in the treaties, post World War One treaties, all these lands were signed away. The borders of Turkey were defined. Everything. It's it's tragic when you look at the treaties. Literally, all these lands, Turkey has to agree. It's going to give all of them up. Right. Uh, and the, the British are going to take some, and the French are going to take some. Palestine was given under a mandate to the British. Okay, so why did Britain want Palestine? Why did Britain want to do that to the Middle East? Well, one of their most senior diplomat was a guy called Nathaniel Curzon, Lord Curzon. He was a former Viceroy of India, and then later on a Foreign Office guy. He was their main negotiator in the Lausanne Conference, uh, and he. Instead, in the House of Lords, it's about India. It's, it, we want it for military and strategic objectives. So it's not about doing hum, like something noble for the beleaguered Jews of Europe, giving them a homeland. Forget that. It's about their strategic objectives. And Sir Ronald Storrs, who was also a Foreign Office diplomat, who was later a Governor-General of the uh, British Mandate Palestine, He described what he wanted, what Britain wanted, was a little loyal Jewish Ulster, all right? Ulster is Northern Ireland, all right? And what did the British do in Northern Ireland? Ireland, predominantly Catholic. Britain's history between Protestants and Catholics, not good. A lot of conflict in trying to occupy Ireland in the time of Elizabeth I and then Cromwell and, and these kind of things. So. What did the British do in Ulster? They took these really radical Protestants who were like from Scotland and shipped them into the North of Ireland so that they changed the demographic there. So that when it came to giving Ireland its independence from Britain, they could argue, "Ah, oh, well, you know, the North is all Protestant and they want to stay with England. They want to stay with Britain. So they managed to divide Ireland, north and south, like that. Okay, so in Northern Ireland, Ulster became a British colony, which was there to safeguard Britain from influence in Ireland. Okay. Uh, so what did Ronald Storrs say that they wanted in the Middle East, a little loyal Jewish Ulster, right? They wanted their proxy colony in the Middle East. So the Zionists want Palestine as a homeland. And the colonialists want Palestine as their proxy colony Up to a point their interests overlap, but actually after a certain point, their interests are going to clash with each other. And in between this, are people. And, Palestine. and in fact, uh, that's just summarizing what I said. Uh, actually, this, this is interesting. This is Curzon writing to Balfour in 1919, so just after the war. Uh, and he's, he's writing to Balfour, basically saying Weitzman, who's the leader of the World Zionist Movement, the guy before I saw with a little beard, uh, contemplated Jewish state, a Jewish nation, a subordinate population of Arabs. And uh, Weitzman's trying to effect this behind the screen and under the shelter of British trusteeship. Well, he's, he's saying, that's not what we want. We want them to run our colony there. Yeah, we don't want them to have their own state and their own independence and their own vision and their own, you know, dominate the Arabs. That's not the agenda. Actually,
1: so, so let me let me just understand uh, really quickly. So on the one hand, you had Lord Curzon talking about how India is really important and all the sea routes and the trade routes yeah. and the land trade routes were going through the Middle East, going through the Arab land. So it was really important. Palestine and some of these areas were really important for that. And then, obviously, this was at the beginning or just before oil was really discovered within the Middle East. Yeah. So they they didn't really yes. know about oil at this time. So for them, it was by India. The end.
0: By the end of the war, they did. By the yeah. end of the war, that it was very clear that they knew that in the north of Iraq, particularly, there was oil there, and they they yeah. knew they had to they had to push that where the French where the French should have had Mosul and places like that. Britain pushed it so that they took that area because they knew the oil fields were there.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then on this quote that you've mentioned here, or oh, the, the previous point yeah. as well, and relate to this, is that they wanted to create a a, 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 a Jewish loyal or oh, loyal Jewish Ulster. Yeah. And colony, so
0: just, basically a colony. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. A colony. Because I think for, just for the audience to be aware, the way Northern, so Ireland is split between Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland is part of Britain. It's not yeah. like separate from Britain. So, when nice. they're saying they want to create an, a Je- loyal Jewish Ulster, they want to create Palestine as being, in essence, a pr- British protectorate, you know, British part protection. of Britain, right. not its own That's state right. initially, at least. That's they right. didn't want to establish That's its own right. state. And obviously, with regards to Ulster, as you mentioned, just to re emphasize the point, they forcefully changed the demographic of Northern Ireland to bring in loyal British. Protestants to then change the demographic away from the 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 Catholic Irish, yeah. yeah. So that and,
0: and this is yeah. important for we will see in the subsequent slides the British did that in Palestine and 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 they did so they were using the same tactics in Palestine and their desire their aim was to have their own satellite colony there right which would be loyal to Britain and what. Person is basically saying to Balfour, well, look, you know, we, this guy's getting too big for his boots, basically. Yeah. This guy is not got the same agenda as us. Uh, and this is important to understand because um, all of this plays out today. Those of you, you guys who watch this region and you will have seen that just before this uh, this conflict broke out in the last week, there's a lot of talk about how Biden wasn't even talking to Netanyahu. Right? Biden and Netanyahu had virtually no dialogue for for months or years. Why? Because Biden, in today's day and age, Britain is no longer the global power. Britain's a small player. America is the big power. America wants their own loyal little Ulster, right? They want their colony there. Well, Netanyahu and his guys these days, they want their own state. They don't want to be anyone's puppet. They want, they want, They don't even want two states. They want just the whole of Palestine and a bit of Jordan to boot, yeah, to be what they call Eretz Israel, right, a greater Israel. That's what they want, right. And actually still the Americans want them to there to be two states so that they have their colony there and to keep them in check. So um, that conflict continues till today. Yeah. And actually um what you can see that conflict playing out right till today um and in fact the balance is you know often the tension is there and it's swinging back and forth um now they've all made up and they're friends again what you can see is that this new government of national unity which they've brought in to fight the muslims in gaza actually a lot of them are the type who will more likely play ball with their Uh, what do you call it, Um, sponsoring power the United States, okay? They're more likely to play ball, whereas the old government, Netanyahu, and these really extreme guys, uh, Ben Gavir and and Smotrich, yeah? They they don't really care what the Americans think, frankly. They just want to do their own thing, yeah? So the pendulum slightly swung back. But this tension goes back to this era. Okay, so wars ended. Britain is given a mandate over Palestine by the League of Nations. So they're told, you know, there's a new country called Syria, there's a new country called Jordan or Transjordan, new country called Lebanon. And by the way, this thing called Palestine, uh, it's going to be run by the British, according to the League of Nations after World War One. And this is the this is a really important site. So remember what we said about Ulster, that they shipped in all these Protestants into the north of Ireland to change the demographic. Have a look at this, guys. Two key dates. All right? Jewish population of Palestine in 1882, 24,000 people. All right? Goes up a bit in 1914 because by this stage, Sultan Abdul Hamid, the Ottomans after him, the Young Turks, They've allowed Jews to come and settle in Palestine, all right, because they've allowed been giving them a home because they are persecuted in Europe. So it's gone from 24,000 to 94,000. Somehow, by the end of the war, 1918, it's gone down to 60,000. Okay, so 1918, war has ended. Britain has taken over. Britain has taken over uh, the, League, uh, the League of Nations mandate over Palestine in 1918 with 60,000 people, right? Their mandate ends in 1948, by which time there is 716,000 Jewish people who have been shipped in from Europe over that 30-year period. Okay. That, in this very small area called Palestine, they've changed the demographic deliberately, deliberately to... Create their colony that they wanted. Okay? That's there been their attempt. And it's created fitna. Man, you know, before this time, Muslims and Jews and Christians did not have a problem rubbing along together in this land of Palestine, right? They got on culturally, culturally, they weren't hugely different. You know, they dressed the similar way, their eating habits, their food styles. They kind of, you know, got along. They just in in they had their different areas within the cities where they lived. They worshipped differently. Obviously, it was all under the umbrella of Islamic rule, but they got on. But in this thirty-year period, the British have completely changed the demographic in there, and and the local Palestinian population is feeling a threat. And these are Europeans. These are not uh, the same cultural, same sort of like cultural affinity to them. You know, you go to the East, people have manners, they have hospitality, they have, they're kind to each other, they get on with their neighbours. You've got some like European guys coming in. yeah. Literally imagine some slightly more civilised football hooligans kind of basically coming in, demanding their, their, their rights, they want what they want. They are a very different bunch of people. And many of them, some of them have been affected by this Zionist ideology in Europe, right? So they think they're coming in and they're coming to their land. They're not thinking they're coming in and being given shelter at somebody else's home. They're thinking that's their right. It's really creating tension in that land. So by the 1940s, you have quite a lot of conflict going on there between the newly imported Jewish migrants, the resident Arab population. And by the way, the resident Jews who'd been there for years, really didn't welcome this change in demographic at the time they absolutely didn't and and the british colonial power because everyone's against them so you've got you've got these clashes going on really bad a really really bad thing it's a terrible terrible thing so you've got the population changing from eight percent to 82 percent slight as if that's not enough this is very depressing to be honest with you. When you read, as if that's not enough, the British in charge of Mandate Palestine are allowing the Jews to organise politically. So there is this thing called the Jewish Agency, right? Which is it's basically a legacy of the Zionist Federation, and uh, they are allowed to organise the Jewish community, the Jewish population there, politically between 1935 and 1948. Okay. And David Ben-Gurion was the chairman of that executive for that period. And Churchill says in 1920, sorry, Lord George says to Churchill in 1922, we must not allow such a thing as a representative government to happen in Palestine. So no way are the Palestinians going to be allowed to organize politically. And and Martin Gilbert, who is a very famous British historian, who uh, is, uh, I think he is uh, of Jewish background, but he's a very famous British historian. From a British historian's perspective, he's uh, said to be an authority on this. He, he actually says the centerpiece of British policy, that Britain would withhold representative institutions to Palestine as long as there was an Arab majority. So change the demographic, get a Jewish majority, and then, oh, we'll allow you to have this wonderful democratic, democratic society in the Middle East, a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. We've just rigged it. We've created a colony and then we'll, we'll, we'll not allow the Arabs to organize and politically. And then their idea was that they would have one state. Actually at this stage, the British believed in one state but it would be majority Jewish. So therefore it would be loyal to them and the Arabs would be a second-class minority. Really depressing. Uh, And uh, frankly, they really didn't care about the injustice of this. Okay, this is Wilton Churchill addressing the Peel Commission that actually had had an idea of a one state solution for Palestine. Uh, And he actually said, um, I don't admit this is terrible language from Churchill. I don't admit that the dog in the manger. A reference to the Palestinian people has the final right to the manger even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I don't admit for an instance that the great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America, meaning the Native American people, or the Black people of Australia, meaning the Aboriginal people, the Native Australian people, both of whom were wiped out, basically, in terms of their numbers by, by the colonial invaders. I don't think the Red Indians had any right to say the American continent belongs to us and we're not going to have any of these European settlers coming here. They had not the right, nor had they the power. Okay, so this is basically Britain's thinking in the 1930s and they're applying that to the Palestinians. I said that in Palestine, in those days, there, were the, there was a lot of conflict. So you've got these European Jews coming in. The British have this vision of one state and they want to do it their way, right? They want one state, They want the Jews to be loyal to Britain. They want the Jews to be the majority. They want the Arabs not to organize. And that's their vision. By this stage, you've got loads of European Jews who are just not happy with that. And as well as being clashes, clashes between them and the Palestinians, you have uh, these Jewish uh, migrants there, Zionist migrants, organizing militarily. The first military group they had is called the Haganah, right? They organized themselves militarily. They do attacks on the Palestinians. They do attacks on the British. Uh, The Haganah had different factions in. Some were more extreme than others. So one faction called Irgun broke off because they thought that the Haganah was too soft, too willing to let off some of these people, they were more radical, they wanted to attack more Palestinians and more British, right. Ergun were responsible, I think I'm not in saying Ergun, there was a more extreme version called Lehi, or the Stern Gang, that broke off from Ergun, right. The Haganah, they broke off the extreme wing called Ergun, broke off an extreme wing called Lehi, or the Stern Gang. The Stern Gang, really weird, considering that they're Jewish Zionists who come from Europe, yeah? They had some good relations with Nazis in Europe, okay? They they really, like, strange dynamic going on here, but they they kind of agreed with the kind of nationalist philosophy. And, And it was, I think, Ergun that did this. This is the King David Hotel in Jerusalem where the British troops used to stay. And effectively, Ergun blew it up, all right? Now this is the 1940s, 1946, I think it was. That's a pretty big explosion for 1946 for a terrorist group. So they're getting their supplies from somewhere and they killed dozens of British officers in that, okay? Uh, The leader of Ergun was this man, Menachem Begin, the founder of the Likud party uh, and later a prime minister of Israel. Likud is the party, Which Netanyahu is the leader of at the moment. So these Zionist militias and terrorist groups morphed into today's politicians, okay? Uh, And they really are. Yitzhak Shamir, who was a former prime minister of uh, the Zionist occupation called Israel, was a member of the Stern Gang of Lehi, all right? So The, these guys were the radical wing. They're uncompromising, which is why you see nowadays they're pretty uncompromising in the way they deal with uh, anyone. Yeah, in terms of what they want is greater Israel. So uh, again, on, this, on that point, just really
1: quickly. So yeah, Abdul, yeah. just on that point. So these organizations that were undertaking military actions against the British, they were termed terrorists, weren't they?
0: Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And all yeah. this stuff about we don't talk to terrorists, it went out the window when, in the end, these guys became politicians, basically. Right. I right. mean, Begin, Begin has British blood, blood of British soldiers on his hands. They, they would host him here as head of state, no problem.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's like basically Israel today or Zionists today yeah. talking about yeah. Hamas and yeah. then inviting yeah. them for a, a state dinner.
0: Absolutely. But it, it, it kind of I think what this really shows, this this period of British mandate rule shows that the, there is this colonial project and there is this Zionist project. And at some point, it's come to loggerheads in this uh, in this game. So 19 Britain, Britain is sick to death of this, by the way, by this stage, by the mid 1940s, they really are like having a headache with this because they hated by the Arabs. They hated by the Jews. The Jews and Arabs hate each other. The Arab resistance is. Um, there are two very famous leaders in Palestine um, who, whose names were very famous. And in fact, one is Haj Amin Husseini, who was uh, an Islamic scholar there. the The West portrays him as an anti Semite, and and the reason they do this is because Haj Amin Husseini, he he felt that these. European Jews, Zionists coming in to take over the land were were a threat. So he would encourage uh any pushback and resistance against that. The the other leader there was Ismail Qassam. Okay, Ismail Qassam. Qassam is now famous because of the Qassam brigades of of Hamas, who who who, who have been in the news recently. Ismail Qassam was a was an Islamic scholar from Syria, and actually Ismail Qassam was was. Far more far-sighted, that he knew that these Zionist Jews from Europe were just the proxies that behind it was a colonial power. So actually, he would vent his anger towards the colonial power and, and actually encouraged the people of Palestine to resist the colonial power, not to focus on the Zionist Jews who were just being pushed there. I, I say, you know, Britain is willing to fight, and America these days is willing to fight to the last Zionist Jew to defend their colony in the region. yeah, They're happy for these peoples to, to, to suffer, to serve their interests. They don't care about them, frankly. Um, and Kassam, he understood that, I think, more than Hosseini did. So Kassam vented anger more towards the British, whereas Hosseini seemed to vent anger more towards the Zionist uh, migrants who'd come. But mid-1940s, Britain is sick to death of it, the, the the mandate is due to expire by 1949 so the British Parliament sets a date of the 15th of May 1948 as the point at which the mandate expires and they're going to hand it over to the UN now for those of you who don't know the UN didn't exist before World War II so 1939 to 1945 there is no UN no United Nations after the United after World War II uh, there is the United Nations, and in 1947, this hand grenade is handed over to the UN, where they design a partition plan. Right, where the green areas are the Jewish state, and the orange areas are the Arab state, and Jerusalem is an international city. And I mean, what a mess! Yeah, this is just unworkable. Right. Uh, But this is what the UN agreed to uh, in November 1947. So November 1947, Britain's mandate is going to end by May 1948. So just seven months down the line. They've changed the demographic of Palestine by then. So that 80% of the population are Jews. They've allowed the Jews to organize uh, 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 politically. They've actually allowed them to organize militarily as well by the stage. So everything is primed for a problem to come. So these are the dates. Uh, These are the dates. Okay. Britain's mandate is due to expire 15th of May. One day before the Zionists unilaterally declare themselves as a state. The same day The United States recognises them. And that's been prepared beforehand. So Ben-Gurion, who's this man, uh, who... By the way, none of these people, Ben-Gurion, Begin, Shamir, none of these people were ever born in that region. Not a single one was born in what is today called Palestine or what they call Israel, yeah? They're all from Europe, Eastern Europe mostly. Um, None of them are indigenous to the region at all, okay? So Ben-Gurion... He's been to the states. He's spoken to Harry Truman, the U.S. president. Truman has made some calculations. Uh, He's uh, recognised this new state, this occupation. He's recognised it as a new state. Now, three days later, just three days later, the Soviet Union recognises them as an official state. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking about this when I was preparing this thinking wow, that's strange isn't it? You know America and the Soviet Union hated each other, but they were allies in the war so and then it occurred to me that both America and the Soviet Union hated Britain and France's colonial kind of rule of the world, so I can quite see, and they did this after the war. Many of your audience may be aware of this uh, if you if you're if you like history, but actually there was a point at which uh, America and the Soviet Union kind of decided that you know we can defer our conflict with each other for a little while but why don't we kind of go to the places where Britain or France have colonial influence and we wrestle the colonial influence away from them so the communists went over to some countries many in Africa and they said hey why do you want to have France ruling over you why don't you have Independence and become a communist state, and and the Americans helped many former uh, Brit- former colonies of Britain and France to rebel against Britain and France over the subsequent kind of after over the couple of decades post war. So uh, that might kind of make sense to me as to why the U.S. and the Soviet Union recognized this new entity very quickly, even though Britain didn't immediately. And it was almost a year before the United Nations formally admitted them. And in that year, there was a lot of, there was war. There was conflict, as we're going to see. Why is this important? Because these guys never had any legitimacy. They were illegitimate from day one. And since that time, they've been trying to buy legitimacy. All right. So they declare themselves as a state in somebody else's land and The US backs them for its own vested interests. The Soviet Union backs them for their own vested interests. The UN is only convinced to admit them and recognize them as an official state a year later. And the Arab countries and the Muslim world didn't recognize them at all. And, And slowly over the subsequent decades, one, then two, then three, then five, then six countries are recognizing them. They are still struggling with being seen as being legitimate. 75 years later yeah and that's a really important thing for us to remember they are not you might have noticed i don't use the word israel very often because i say so called israel because i don't view it as a state it's not actually a state it is an occupation which is a pseudo state it is a military occupation which calls itself a state and i don't want to dignify it with the word of being a state that that's as simple as that yeah um, so, this is an important fact. 1948 happens, and we have what is called a Nakba, a catastrophe. uh and this is tragic. This is literally these Zionist militias; they turn their guns on the Palestinians, and in the in the one year that followed the 15th of May 1948, between 750,000 and 900,000 Palestinian men, women and children driven out of their homeland. What we are seeing of 1 million people in Gaza being shifted away has happened before. 500 villages were depopulated and demolished. All right. This is what we call a Nakba in this one year period. Uh... Haaretz, which is a Zionist newspaper, um, they they say most historians today, Zionist, post-Zionist and non-Zionist, agree that at least 120 of the 530 villages, uh, the Palestinian inhabitants were expelled by Jewish militias and military forces. So literally, people were driven out of their homes, Uh, they went. To what is now the West Bank or what is now Gaza or eventually they ended up in Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, Syria, Iraq, always to this day, unfortunately, as second class citizens, because even though they're Muslim, even though they're Arab, even though they're born in those countries, uh, the the nation states that were divided up by the colonialists after the war never sees them as their own
1: people. And just as a point as well, this is really important because, again, it explodes this myth that the Zionists or the Jews came, they simply bought up the land. It was a fair transaction between the Palestinian people uh, and these Zionists. And so, you know, what's Muslims got a problem with? What are the Palestinians got a problem with? But even their own newspaper says most historians agree that villages were being wiped out or being, uh, you know, the villagers were being expelled from this up to, like you said, 900,000. And obviously we're talking about a very lower population compared to today in terms of not just that region, but world population. So a million people being, uh, you know, removed from a particular area is a huge number, uh, you know, in, in comparison. So you know, people need to be aware that this this point explodes this myth that it was just, you know, these Zionists coming in buying up land, and that was mm. the reason why they were able to populate this area. It was because and... they removed the villages. They removed the villages. They removed the in- indigenous population from this area.
0: There's there's a very nasty streak. I mean, this is there's a really very nasty streak to these people as well. Many of you will have heard of this. This place Dir Yasin was a village in Palestine, and the Zionists deliberately picked this village to, cre- to inflict such horrific atrocities on the people that the rumor would spread around Palestine. So that when they came to other places, people wouldn't want to stay. They wouldn't want to stay to see their men killed, their women. Dishonored and killed and mutilation of bodies, right? Um, we've heard the fake news in the last week about the beheaded babies, right? No no evidence has been brought into the public domain about beheaded babies. Well, I can understand why that's in the imagination of these people because of what they committed in Deryasin in the past, right? They targeted this village they went in as a crack-swabbed squad to create as much mayhem and, and a ripple effect across the whole Palestine so that there was followed by many Arabs fleeing their localities in the future just because of this, basically. Uh, there were like 25 survivors taken to Jerusalem as trophies and then killed there, executed there, basically. There is no Derya Yassin today. If you look on a map, you won't find it there um uh, this is a letter from a stern gang operative a lehi operative who said literally house by house we were putting explosives in and they're running away an explosion and move on explosion and move on and within a few hours half the village isn't there anymore yeah to me it looked a bit like a pogrom i mean you know when you hear that and you know that this land has was occupied by people like this you'll you'll understand why it makes us as muslims so angry that it's as if the Western media and Western politicians want to portray to their population that atrocities in that region just started a week ago. Yeah. From 1948 onwards, this is what the Muslims and, and Christian Arabs in Palestine have been living with. Okay. And, and so, you know, put it in perspective, guys. This is your, when when if if I say this, if there were atrocities done by Muslims last week genuine atrocities that go beyond what is acceptable in resistance right we as muslims wouldn't agree with that because our loyalty is to allah and his messenger and the sharia of allah right but worse than that even if that were true and proven worse than that is what the palestinians have suffered in the last 75 years by multiple times over so you'll excuse me if i don't like Listen with patience to what people are saying these days about what's happening in Gaza. I mean, these are just more accounts about what happened. People tied to a tree and set on fire. People just blasted with a Tommy gun. Two Arab girls of 16 or 17 put against the wall. I stood them. This is from people that were there. I stood them, two Arab girls of 16, 17, against the wall, and blasted them with two rounds from a tommy gun. Old woman and old man shot in the back. They just piled up their bodies and burned them. And the impact goes on today, basically. This is a, this is a Zionist from today uh, who argues there is justification for killing babies if it's clear that they'll grow up to harm us. That's their philosophy of these people, right? That's the kind of thing. And th- this is a opinion column in Haaretz written by a Jewish writer in Israel, who basically says, you know, killing children brings the Israelis together. And you see that what's uniting them today is this attack. But more than that, it's the revenge, the bloodlust that's going on for revenge in Gaza at the moment, which is allowing their, their, their politicians to effectively ethnically cleanse, right? It gives license to them to do what they want. And this is, as I say, this is kind of, you know, this is the language of today, basically. So the Israeli president says there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. These are banners on the road in Tel Aviv. Genocide Gaza. Victory is zero people in Gaza. Yeah, these are the kind of headlines that are there. And this is a still from a video where they're celebrating and joking. Gaza is going to be a cemetery, basically. So... Okay, 1948 happens, they declare, 15th, 14th of May, they declare their own state, right? Um, the Palestinians have nothing. They're being attacked in this way I'm describing, which seen happened before the declaration, but it's a similar type of attack happening by these militias, driving people out of their villages. Strategic attacks to get more land. By the way, there's a very good, if you've got iPlayer, There is an interesting series of documentaries called Holy Land Stories on iPlayer. Uh, It is worth watching in this context. They they basically take um, people of Palestinian origin living in Britain and people of Jewish origin living in Britain, and they allow them to go and visit uh, occupied Palestine. And to retrace some things about their families. And you know, the BBC try and present it as really nice, even handed stories, emotional stories, but you know, you can't hide it. Even the way they present it, effectively, a lot of the Jewish families that are presenting there, their ancestors went there to fight, to kill, to depopulate Arab areas and settled there. And the Arab families that are going back there are going back to find their land is taken over is lost, that, you know, they had family, they had one, fa- one sister who goes there and her family were from Deir Yassin. So, you know, literally the, the lands are taken. It's very moving, actually. And I don't think it's meant to be presented in an even-handed way. And even when you do, I don't think anyone can watch it and feel that it's kind of in any way, shape or form, even-handed. But what happens at that same time is the Arab countries surrounding are like really unhappy because what they were promised by the British and the French before the war is not happened, right? They weren't expecting this. In fact, Jordan was expecting to have the whole of Palestine at one stage. Okay, and um, uh, and each of these countries—Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, Jordan—they have proxy rulers in there the proxy colonies and the, the armies are commanded by former british officers okay so there is a war declared on this new state of israel supposedly our so-called state of israel the declared aims of this war in in, in the war de- the declared aims in a statement uh, in the terms of reference of the war that were agreed between these powers beforehand it actually included disarming the Palestinians, disarming the Palestinian militias. Okay, and it, in in that Holy Land um, Holy Land Stories program, they they go to a village with some Palestinian uh, old men who had to evacuate that village when they were when they were young, and they describe how you know the Jewish militias came and were trying to drive them out. And the, the men of the village did their best to defend. And then the soldiers came from Jordan and they said to the Palestinian villagers, leave it to us, we will defend you. Yeah, Take your family a few miles down the road into Jordan and wait there and then you can come back. Give us your guns. Like literally they'd give up their weapons, they'd go. And within, within days of that, Effectively, they, 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 they did their first ceasefire. So the official war is declared on the 15th of May. And by the 11th of June, it's the first ceasefire. So in that, British, uh, in that BBC documentary, Holy Land Stories, these old men are living in Jordan. And they were young men or children who were told, oh, you'd just be away for a few days and then come back. And they never, they never got to come back to their village, basically. Never, ever got to come back to their village. So this so-called war, effectively, it reminds me of with the Bosnians, isn't it? The UN went in there and on the pretext of protecting the Bosnians, but they said, lay down your weapons and we'll protect you. And then there was no protection for them. Basically. So, so yeah, let
1: me understand this, because uh, this is quite, this is relatively new information for me as well. So you're saying that the Arab countries, and you, you just for people who've, Uh, joined maybe midway or or late, we we discussed how the British and the French, the colonial powers during World War I, how they created uh, these proxy states within the Arab countries. Yeah, But what you're saying, though, is that these Arab states that were created by the British and the French, they declared war against the state of Israel when it was first founded. And you're saying that one of their stated aims of the Arab countries was to disarm the palestinians
0: yeah and in fact in fact some of it was to disarm the militias that were linked to haj amin husseini in particular but but actually disarm, basically disarm them i mean they 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 were all out in it for themselves all right the, these these countries that they created they had rulers in there and this will not actually surprise our audience very much, right? They had rulers in there who, who relied on external powers to guide them, influence them, keep them in their positions of power, right? With money, with military support, with actually military officers guiding them, okay? Um, but at the same time, um, they also wanted to look out for themselves and their own families and their own ruling elites, yeah. So th- this is like not unusual. This is what we see in the Muslim world today, frankly, isn't it? Mm. So you you can imagine that in the 1940s, where these states are less mature than they are now. So, yeah. the, you know, country like Syria went through coup and counter coup, God knows how many times between uh, 1918 at the end of World War One and and the 1960s. It
1: was constantly is
0: there... two counter yeah yeah.
1: So these are not stable well. states. Yeah yeah. But yeah. have you got have you got a reference for that point that you mentioned that one of the so, is, is so it I've got by...
0: the... it's mentioned in a book uh, I have written by Tariqa Suedan, who's a Kuwaiti scholar, uh, a book on Palestine. Uh, which uh, unfortunately he doesn't reference that, but the references he would use would be in. um from arab sources i'm sure yeah, yeah. Um, okay. but 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 he actually he has three points and each one of the points is effectively about disarming the palestinians yeah and one of them is one of them is to disarm the guerrilla groups linked to hajmi amin husseini to disarm the population and it's like you know the, the, the soldiers the sincere soldiers who went in from jordan or syria went in and said to the palestinian people we will defend you right Leave it to us, we will defend you. So, I don't believe that the ordinary soldier on the ground went in thinking he's going to do anything except defend them. But their commanding officers basically they're the ones who determined when the ceasefire happened. And there was a ceasefire in 19 on the 11th of June, just through, less than a month after this war is officially declared. Um, and then they, in that ceasefire period the Zionists got more arms, more supports, and regrouped. They were not doing well initially. And in fact, the British officer assigned by Britain to assist the Jordanian king, Abdullah, uh, who was the son of Sharif Hussein, the aforementioned guy who allied with Lawrence of Arabia that we talked about, right? His son, Abdullah, was the king of Jordan, the new king of Jordan. Jordan never had a king. There was no Jordan before, uh, but he became king. Um, and um, he was given the assistance of a guy called John Bagot Glubb, who was a British officer, uh, who he was his leader of his army and a chief advisor. He got known as Glubb Pasha uh, because he was so like involved with the regime. It was almost like the chief minister. And he is quoted as saying, if the Arabs had allowed their forces to finish the job on the 15th of May, they would probably have annihilated the emerging state of Israel somewhere along the line, somebody has advised these Arab countries that they should have a ceasefire three and a half weeks after they started this war to defend the Palestinians, okay? In that time uh, of an, of another few weeks, the Zionists regrouped, rearmed, they had arms coming in from Europe, and fighting resumed, all right, which then continued till February the next year. In that time, those hundreds of thousands of palestinians were driven out of their home i mean basically this is the part of what happened in the nakba and they literally were sent to live in the areas which were uh which the the zionists wanted they were expelled from there they ended up living in what is today's west bank there are there are refugee camps in places like janine and places like that in, in the west bank in the north of gaza where we're talking about at the moment a lot of them are not indigenously from that locality they're from other parts of palestine and then many ended up in lebanon jordan syria egypt kuwait
1: yeah i uh, think 70 yeah. percent of gaza 70 of the yeah. population of gaza are actually uh yeah uh, refugees refugee, internal refugees effectively yeah. they they what they call the state of Israel now that's where they're actually from and they had to move uh,
0: uh, and this is this is a synergistic moment between the Zionists and the colonialists, okay because the colonialists gave them backing very much like they're giving backing to what's happening today, right literally it's a synergistic moment they're supposedly on the side of the Arabs but actually they facilitated all the ceasefires and and, and eventually what happens, okay? And this is why in my next section, I call them the Zionist Muslim rulers, okay? Because really these people have been the people that have allowed the existence of this occupation to continue for 75 years. Uh, Sharif Hussein, we've already talked about, uh, who started in his betrayal with his correspondence with Sir Henry McMahon, uh, during World War One. And then these are his sons, right? These are, This is his family, basically. And they're various members of his family with British officers and other dignitaries of that region. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, this is his son, Faisal. Faisal ibn Sharif Hussein, uh, on the right of this photograph, was originally given the Kingdom of Syria, and then later, given the kingdom of Iraq, and there's a hilarious story about when he's given. I mean, this is a guy who's born and born and brought up in Mecca, basically in Hijaz, right? And there's a hilarious story about him when he becomes the king of Iraq, because um, he's taken in Iraq to have uh, be given allegiance by the leaders of tribes uh, as a formal kind of ceremony to become king, and the British. This British spy, Gertrude Bell is friends with this guy uh, uh, Faisal ibn Sharif Hussein and uh, the, the the leaders of the tribes they go up to him and they say we pledge you allegiance as king of Iraq because you are the one who's most desired by the british that was actually their pledge of allegiance to the guy yeah and, and gretchen bell writes in her memoir faisal looked confused about what the hell they were saying and a bit embarrassed and then she then he looked at her looking for something and she said i just clasped hold of his hands and congratulated him and then everyone sang god save the king basically yeah that's i mean it's it's a joke yeah it's yeah. a. that is how these countries were founded yeah the kingdom of iran which then later there was a military coup that that then ousted these guys yeah. just so the really...
1: the audience are aware isn't it you had Lawrence of Arabia who sourced towards the hejaz area yeah. and nudged and you had Gertrude Bell a woman yeah, yeah. who is the female in Lawrence Iraq, yeah and she yeah, was that's right she was dictating and directing uh, yeah. the arab tribes in this in this region on behalf of the british yeah so just so the audience so th- are aware
0: this is a really, this is a really, really nasty thing, right? Um, in, in, at the end of World War I, there was a conference called, there were two, two big conferences, the Favre Conference and then later the Lausanne Conference, but these were the, the conferences where the Europeans effectively um, carved up the Muslim world and it, it ended up, it led effectively to the dismantlement of the Khilafah as well, Okay. And Weitzman, this is Klein Weitzman, the same guy with the little beard, with the Zionist guy who lobbied the British to do the Balfour Declaration. And Are you saying the one in, he, the, in the white suit? He's the one in the white. So Weitzman so is the one in the white. right. Wow. Yeah, that's I Weitzman. That was, with uh... him is his, mate, is his mate, Faisal, yeah, his mate right. Faisal. They're good friends by this stage, all right? Both, you know, one is lobbying the British and one is doing the dirty work for the British, okay? And uh, th- they're both invited to the conferences after the war, right? Weitzman, I mean, he's a nobody, and yet he's, he's invited to this conference where they're dividing up, okay? And Weitzman and, um, and Sharif Hussein, uh, sorry, and Faisal Ibn Hussein, they basically are both asked, to sign a document which uh, allows the, uh, um, the 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 British to take over uh, Palestine, and the Zionist organization will be kind of given a right to assist in the uh, post-war period in that thing. And this is the document which is countersigned by Weitzman right? And in Arabic, you can see Sharif Hussein's writing here. He couldn't actually read English. So uh, this was translated for him. This is actually the handwriting of Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence translated it for him, and then he signed it. So effectively, this guy, he's a nobody. He's He's a traitor to the Muslims, the son of a traitor to the Muslims, to the Ottoman Khilafah. And he's invited to this European conference about carving up and he effectively signs over, saying the Zionists are allowed a say in what happens in the future of the Middle East. Right? This is the betrayal of these kind of people.
1: And this just so is... just, oh, just really quickly, because maybe some people have uh, uh, joined halfway through. Weizmann was in partnership with Theodore Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement. Both of them were pro-Zionist, campaigning for the establishment. Uh, of a Zionist state, and particularly within Palestine. So this is this is who they're making deals with, effectively.
0: Effectively, yes. And 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 this is and effect, I mean, actually, what they're doing is just he's just doing what the British tell him to. That that bottom line. That's what it was really, basically. So you know, like it's the the Paris peace the Paris peace conference is going on basically, and uh, uh, they they. They invite Weitzman to that, so they're fulfilling their kind of agreement to them. But remember, what the British want is their colony there. So they're they're in their mind, they're facilitating their agenda to that. But effectively, what they're what they're doing is they're giving him a say in the future of the uh, of the region, and uh, it's being endorsed by by. Um, by Hussein, as if so he's what, sorry,
1: like some sorry, kind of representative. Yeah, Otherwise, just really quickly, what year is this again, sorry? This is actually 1919. Okay. Right, okay, so this is, a, okay. this is after the Balfour Declaration, yeah, this is before exactly. the founding of the, of the uh, Zionist state, and uh, basically, he's saying we will allow the Zionists to have yeah, a so, say within the Arab world, because he's been told so that like, by the British
0: absolutely so it's actually you know it's the text of the agreement is actually his royal highness the emir faisal representing and acting on behalf of the arab kingdom of hijaz never existed before they just invented it and dr Chaim weitzman representing and acting on behalf of the zionist organization mindful of the racial kinship and ancient bonds between arab and jewish people and realizing the surest means of working out the consummation of their natural aspiration is through the closest possible collaboration and development of the Arab state and Palestine, and being desirous of further, further of conforming, confirming the good understanding which exists between them, have agreed upon the following. And then the main points of the agreement are that both parties uh, will have goodwill and understanding and work together to encourage immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale, while protecting the rights of the Arab peasants and tenant farmers to safeguard the free practice of religious observances. The Muslim holy places are to be under Muslim control. The Zionist movement undertakes to assist the Arab residents of Palestine to develop their natural resources and growing economy. Uh, Both parties committed to carrying into effect the Balfour Declaration of 1917, calling for a Jewish national home in Palestine. I mean, that is, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It's literally the idea that that somebody, these nobodies can sign this in this peace conference and it's going to happen, yeah? And even the the way they, they refer to the indigenous people of Palestine, Arab peasants and farmers, it's like, so I don't know how much they paid the guy for this, but I, I guess maybe the kingdom of Iraq was what he got at the end of it for it. Yeah. Um, These are why I call these people the Zionist Muslim rulers, because, you know, the first this war, the first war, like I say, all these countries, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, they all go in there, but they're all going in it for themselves, their elites and their colonial proxies who they're working for, British or France. Yeah. And the the, the result of this war is like basically a massive change of the demographic. So literally at the end of this war the first big change in the map occurs in 1949. It's really um, this is uh, for the same Faisal standing next to T.E. Lawrence here and this is his brother Abdullah uh, with John Bagot Glubb or Glubb Pasha in Jordan. So he became the king of Syria but then was booted out so he became the king of Iraq and he became the king of Jordan and his uh, either great grandson or grandson is currently the current king of Jordan. Okay. And this is Glub, This is Glub, the guy. Now, the British guy ambassador, has his, uh, to Jordan. Yeah, the British ambassador, basically. So yeah. this guy has his own betrayal. I mean, I, I don't know if I. Okay. So King Abdullah, this guy, right? So Jordan actually made peace with the Zionist occupiers in, I think, 1994, 93 or 94. Okay. Officially, officially they made peace. So up till that point, they're supposed to be enemies. Okay. Well, in 1947-48, this guy is having backdoor conversations with leading Zionists to try and facilitate the British Peel Commission one-state solution. So he wants to be the leader, the king of the whole of. Palestine and Jordan um, and he's negotiating with the Zionists basically saying you work with me and I'll give you a good deal yeah and and you know he it's actually he's he's having deals with Golda Meir who was later a prime minister and there's a very controversial film about her these days isn't there because she was the prime minister of the Zionist entity in 1973 during one of the wars Basically, he was doing backdoor discussions with her and others at this time. I think I'm right in saying that this guy got assassinated because people knew his treachery for years, basically. And what you've seen in the subsequent decades, I mean, I'm going to condense this very much, is war and then peace, war and then peace. And at every stage, the wars are never really fought with any way to defend the Palestinian land, to defend the Palestinian people, to give them. Freedom and rescue them from help they never fought for those reasons and the peace that's made afterwards has always sold them out always. so you know, it, it,
1: i was going to mention the point which is that in all of these wars well most of these wars i should say it pretty much was the case that not only did the these arab regimes lose but they also lost more land for palestinians they lost more land and then, more. as a result, so, that the peace that they did was a peace to recognise the losses, in essence.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, if you take the sixty-seven war, for example, uh, which is the one where, where people talk about nineteen sixty-seven borders today. So, sixty-seven war was probably they call it the six-day war, but it was one of the, it was the war which effectively they lost the most. The Palestinians lost the most land, you could say, in in one war and this is an interesting one when you read the dynamics of this because um jordan egypt syria uh, and and the zionists at this stage they've all got slightly different allegiances to britain france and america all right and and remember this is a post this in this era between 1940s and 1970s you know these. These old colonial powers, France and Britain, they're wrestling a bit with America. They're allies of America, but they're also wrestling with them to try and retain control of their own influence. Yeah? And uh, Britain had a real problem with Nasser in Egypt. They really hated Nasser. He, he badly affected British interests in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, and, and history tells us, in retrospect, Nasser was a CIA agent. It's a well-recognized now it was controversial at the time if you'd said that in egypt at the time you'd probably get killed by the mass by a mob because he was so hero worshipped yeah but um in retrospect very clear documented good links with the cia all right um hussein of jordan the son of abdullah or grandson i can't remember which but he's the son i think he's the son of abdullah um he is uh very loyal to British. A Sandhurst man, actually. He was educated in Sandhurst.
1: Sandhurst, so for the he, audience, is a military so, yeah, college, British it's a, military college, it's, like so, West Point in a, America.
0: It, it's an elite British military college, yeah? So he's a Sandhurst man. He sent he sent his uh, kids to be educated in Britain at the uh, at some of the most famous private schools in this country, okay? So he's a very loyal man to Britain. Um, and he makes a security deal with... Um, Nasser, and they plan an invasion and whoa somehow the zionists seem to know everything that's going to happen beforehand and somehow they bomb the egyptian runways even before the planes take off yeah and and as yeah, it's this is a disaster basically this is a like uh complete kind of like disaster 67 war 73 war a few years later so-called yom kippur war uh well, here's another one. This is one where America, and, sorry, where Syria and Egypt decide to go in and Jordan say, no, I'm not going to go in. All right. And uh, in just a couple of years back, the classified documents showed that King Hussein, this very same guy who didn't officially make peace until 1993, 94, when he was this old man. OK, he contacts the Israeli leadership. And tell them, oh, by the way, Egypt and Syria are going to invade you in the coming days and weeks. He grasses them up, basically. Yeah, it, it, it's like it's you, you couldn't make it up. It is literally you couldn't make it up. Yeah, and and after each of these um, wars, there's there's peace deals, and the peace never favors the Palestinians. And this is really important to understand and again, this is synergy between Zionists and colonialists. Um, this is more peace deals with uh, under Clinton when Arafat made peace in the end as well. This is just a little timeline of all the different peace deals along the way. but I just want to give you one example, uh, one taster of what these peace deals are like for Palestinians. So one of the most famous one is the Oslo Accords, okay? Uh, the Oslo Accords, which then led to this, basically this uh, Arafat making peace, the PLO making peace after Jordan and Egypt have done so, okay? This is, sorry, this is, this is really depressing guys. I'm really sorry to have to depress you like this. But this is the West Bank, right? Okay, uh, if you remember, um oh wow that's good i didn't realize i could do that That's really good so if we go back to one of our early slides okay uh and this is the transition we're looking at this is the west bank right which ends up looking like the balkans or an archipelago like i said it was back to 54. so after the oslo peace accords The West Bank is divided into three zones, area A, B, and C. Area C, the orange part, is actually to be administrated by Israel. Area A, the uh, the lighter gray part, is to be administered by the Palestinian Authority and the policing is by the Palestinian Authority. And area B, which is the darker Grey areas, darker blue areas, uh, which is twenty-two percent. The administration can be by the Palestinians, so cleaning the roads, cleaning the bins, keeping that sort of thing, right? But the security is done by the Israelis, okay? Uh, and this is because these are the areas where they've made their settlement in the West Bank, okay? Now, area C, the part to be controlled by Israel, is sixty percent of the West Bank area a which the palestinian national authority is supposed to be in charge of wholly is just 18% and area b 22% that was as a result of this amazing peace negotiation called the oslo accords for the palestinians
1: it just that's as a the quick... kind of
0: deal the palestinians get
1: yeah yeah so just i was just going to mention two things so effectively the west bank now is the agreement was effectively to allow even more in principle now. Maybe in in the past it was a case that the the Zionist entity was controlling the West Bank and having their soldiers, but now they've actually made a peace deal to solidify that control in certain key areas of that. And also I was just going to mention, you put Oslo 1995. Was there a reason why 95 or 93 was it just a typo? Uh,
0: Sorry, was it? it, Did I make a mistake?
1: Yeah, 93, isn't it? Ninety-three. Sorry, that is a typo. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. For that. Okay, that's a typo.
0: Okay, so I mean, an area C that sixty percent, which is controlled by the Israelis. I mean, you've got about three hundred thousand Palestinians living in that area. They can't even get decent schooling. They they have to travel very far to get schooling. There, the, the, the economy is poor for them. I mean, and this, by even by their own international law, uh, according to the international law, this was grabbed in the sixty-seven. Uh, war and so they're not even meant to be in there and uh, but this was enshrined in Oslo right so effectively international the international community has allowed them to do this okay Uh, so it is nonsense this is this is criminal frankly Uh, Trump Trump came in and actually didn't even pretend to offer something to the Palestinians he had this different vision that if we get these other Arab states to make deals with the Zionists directly, the incentive can be that they all benefit economically, right? So, you know, tourism, travel, trade, it's a win-win for everyone, he says, yeah? Uh, So, again, this is why I call them the Zionist uh, Muslim rulers, basically. They are the real Zionist defense force, without question. colonialists could not do what they do since 1948 without these people they could just couldn't do it and at the same time the Zionists are very happy doing deals with these people because it serves their agenda as well yeah and you know well what do I have to say really this guy has two faces when it comes to Palestine over and over again really uh, Erdogan of Turkey and know future betrayal we're expecting we were all expecting a few weeks ago that the saudis will make their deal i don't say it's off the table by the way because when you see that history of what i said before here war and then peace all of us need to be very 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 mindful about what follows in the subsequent days weeks and months okay because if this can happen after war if you get egypt jordan the plo and this is after two intifadas that they they kind of uh, they have this yeah if you have if you have these kind of sellout deals by these people after such bloody and terrible episodes of violence then be very very careful about what future betrayals we have yeah and this is netanyahu at the un with his map which shows a new middle east where he doesn't even include palestine in it basically he's just taken the whole thing for themselves right and this was a point of tension with the americans so the the saudi deal which biden was trying to facilitate was the carrot to try and get them to come back to america's vision of their little loyal colony okay uh, whereas this map is Netanyahu giving the Zionist vision of what they want. Neither of them are any good for the Palestinians, frankly. Neither of them serve the Palestinians. Neither of them are just in Islam. They're unacceptable. Sheikh Dakinin Abhani made this statement, which, which really actually summarizes this whole episode very, very well. He said, Israel is the shadow of the Arab regimes. Okay. So literally, like if you've got an object and light is cast on it and you have a shadow, yeah, that the the object is the Arab regimes, the Zionist Muslim rulers. Yeah. Israel is their shadow. If they aren't there, that shadow would cease to exist. And and 100 percent, that's true, actually. And it's really important to remember this, because if you think. The Zionist occupation today exists because of that geopolitical shakeup in the Middle East in the 19 um, in the 19 uh, teens after world war one all right so occupation militarily division of the lands proxy rulers and the zionist entity being for the abolition of the khilafah right uh, it it only exists because of the rest if there was reunification of muslim lands sincere islamic leadership it would just literally evaporate. And I, I really think it would evaporate. I think they would recognize that it's just so, the people living there, the Zionists living there would recognize it's so untenable. They would be on a plane back to uh, their homes in Europe and America and elsewhere, basically. Um, okay, I, I've been talking for a very long time. Uh, I don't want to belittle talking about how bad things are today maybe it's less relevant to my main thesis about zionism so i'm going to skip through this Uh, the human cost is huge uh people palestinians are dying every day uh, every year i mean these are years going from uh 2008 through to 2020 uh 22, 23 has been a really bad year. Even in the West Bank, in 23, there were literally already two, over 200 deaths. Um, West Bank and Gaza—I mean, they cannot function. If you live in the West Bank, you cannot get to Jerusalem. You cannot get from one side, your job or family, maybe just the other side of the border. You cannot get to Gaza. These are supposed to be united lands, but they're not. Gaza has been besieged for 15 years. The West Bank is balkanized. It has about 500 movement obstacles in the West Bank, stopping people from getting from A to B easily. They're, they're constantly having to go through roadblocks and checkpoints. You cannot function properly in that kind of area. As I say, there's this wall which divides the West Bank from uh, the rest of the Palestinian territories. Uh, settlements have grown massively in the West Bank, and the... Uh, they steal the land, they destroy the crops of the Palestinians, they do it, they kill Palestinians, they do it with impunity, because it's in those orange areas, area C and area B, where the Zionists have the security force. So if the Palestinians are trying to defend themselves, they'll get killed by the armed uh, Zionist soldiers. Yeah. Settlements, by the way, just in case, settlements kind of conjures up some maybe, you know, I don't know, some like farm or or ranch like in the Wild West or something like that. These are the settlements. They literally build cities in there. I visited Palestine once. We drove through the West Bank and you could see this built up area like this snaking through the countryside for like, I don't know, 15, 20 minute drive. You're driving past this, uh, it's open, like a country type road. So you're driving at about 40, 50 miles an hour and it's at least 15 minutes to get through the whole thing um killings as i say in the west bank just this year alone it's over 200 even last week there were masses of killings in janine before what kicked off in gaza this week al-quds we hear about increasing incursions into al-masha al-aqsa by zionists illegally coming in occupiers coming in and then when the people resist in ramadan in subsequent recurrent years, the security forces come in, they trash the mosque, they beat the people. In Al-Quds, generally, they're demolishing houses. This is a very common strategy. They they literally try and occupy house by house, demolishing houses. We, we knew about the protests in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, since 1967, the Zionists have demolished over 27,000 Palestinian homes, and they use these ridiculous ploys like they haven't got licenses. They're in need, in need of repair. Where's the paperwork? All the, they just demolish it, basically. And they don't give them permit requests when they need to get licenses. They don't facilitate it. They control the water of the region. Christians, Christians get spat on. I mean, this is the latest thing in the last few weeks where the, with the these settlers and occupiers in, with impunity, they're basically going to Christian Arabs and, they're, and, and visitors, from overseas, who come there on pilgrimages, and they're literally just spitting on them, and 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 with impunity, they're doing that. The siege of Gaza has been going on since two thousand and seven. I mean, Gaza is this very small area of land. It's literally there's sea locked on one side, land locked on another side. There is a crossing into Egypt called the Rafah crossing, which the Egyptians blockade because they don't want. Uh, refugees coming from Gaza into Egypt. Two million people in a 5,000 square mile area. It's, a, it's smaller than the city of Oslo, right? But home to three times as many people. Uh, and seven out of 10 are refugees, traumatized by war, schools are run down, the water's undrinkable, and mass unemployment. You, very young population, yeah? Very, very young population. About 7% of the children have stunted growth. Even David Cameron said it's a prison camp. Okay, that's how he described it back in 2010. Uh, Deaths in Gaza over before this episode in 7th of October, there'd already been 35 deaths this year. Okay, many many mass casualties over the years. Uh, As of 12 hours ago this morning, the death count in the last week is 230. Nearly two hundred. No, sorry, two thousand three hundred to two thousand four hundred. That was, right. That was the last figure I could find from Reuters this morning. Uh, and about seven thousand five hundred injured. And we are told one million displaced people in a week. Um, thank you, Brett, who's just said it has a population of five thousand people per square mile. I think I, I missed that. Um. 5,026 people per square kilometre. Thank you, Brett. Really, really helpful statistic. Uh, the Zionist leaders, you've got to get this. They talk about extreme right wing, extreme left wing. The recent government is un- unashamedly radically Zionist. They, they really don't care to be a puppet of the West. They want the whole land of Palestine and some of Jordan back that's Netanyahu. This is Smotrich who believes it. He's got some pretty ugly beliefs. He lives, he actually lives in the occupied territories and settlements, uh, basically. He also believes in in changing the demographic. He talks about flooding the areas with Jewish settlers. And uh if the Palestinians kick up, then kill them effectively. Yeah. He, he has no shame about believing that. Um Ben Gavir. Uh, very similar guy, guy with a criminal record, probably you know, probably guilty of personally murdering people, um, and a real thug. Um, these guys, the West portrays them as really bad and really evil. They are really bad and really evil, but the trouble is, the West portrays the new like unity government with people like Benny Gant, Gantz and Gantz and Yeah Lapid and these kind of people as kind of the good guys because they can deal with them. But they are also radical Zionists who really—they have a more gradual approach to uh, subjugating the Palestinian population and depopulating the area. Uh, you know, many people will remember Zippy Livni, a former foreign minister of the Zionist occupiers, and she said, "You know, Arabs—they can go and live in Jordan. You can go and live in other Arab countries." So, and she was talking about the so-called Israeli Arabs, the ones who live as citizens full citizens of israel yeah so uh, they all have the same agenda they just have different means of getting there the pendulum has swung away from the extreme right because netanyahu ben gavir smotrich and their gang are being blamed for what happened last week last week and uh, the, the, this unity government that's come in, their other players will be seen as more acceptable going forward. So that this is what's happening there. But they're literally all Zionist thugs. Future, okay. What can I say? The present is pretty terrible. The past is extremely depressing, okay. The future is good, man. The future is good. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Sites Pico, and the division of the land, the abolition of the Khilafah, you know what, that's how it's going to change. And actually, we are foretold by prophecy from the Prophet Sallam that Khilafah will re-emerge. So that land will be united again. There will be a righteous Islamic ruler. And, and key thing for everyone in this, guys, Muslim or non-Muslim, right, when Islam ruled the region, you actually had some justice there you didn't have persecution of Jews, you didn't have persecution of Christian Christians. In fact, one of the only reasons you have Jewish and Christian populations indigenous there is because they had protection under Islam, right? The aberrations to the last 1400 years have been the century of crusader rule and the last century of, of colonial stroke Zionist involvement in the region. So actually anyone who really wants peace security and justice and decency for people they would realize that that will come under an islamic system the islamic system doesn't expect people to become muslim right no the islamic system means the system of allah Subhanahu wa Taala and his messenger sallam, is the system which organizes political life organizes justice for everybody organizes a uh, circulation of wealth in the society, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Food, shelter, clothing, education, healthcare for all its citizens, regardless of uh, where they are from. So the, this is the future, which is good for everyone, honestly, except for the people who steal land and oppress and murder Palestinians. Okay, And does the Muslim world have the capability? It sure does. The left-hand column is the military capability of the 14 closest countries to the Zionist occupiers, and the right-hand column is the Zionist occupiers. By every metric on expenditure, active armed forces, artillery, aircraft, naval craft, every metric, just these 14 countries, you're talking about between 7 and 10 to 1 ratio of strength in favor. I I really don't believe, this is a personal belief, this is not, I can't assign this to anyone else but myself, I really don't believe there will be, when, when the resources of the Muslim world are united, I don't believe there will be a bloodbath. I believe, actually, these people, the ones who have something to be ashamed of, will leave. They will not stay around for a fight. I've been there, I've seen them, I've looked them in the eye. They are not a very brave people. I will tell you that. They really are not. Okay. I had to push my 75 year old mother in a wheelchair, and they were terrified of me coming towards them with my mother in a wheelchair. uh, And they had their armed guns pointing at us when we went to visit Hebron, shouting at us in Hebrew. I couldn't understand them. And seriously, I think I was more afraid of my school teacher at school than I was of this guy. Uh he was terrified. Yeah. I can see why they shoot so many people. They are very, they are very uh they've got their fingers on the triggers too much. They are absolutely terrified. They're terrified of me with a 75-year-old woman in a wheelchair. They've got a problem. Yeah, they've got a serious problem. Yeah. And, and, I remember
1: when when similar stimulus- Not that same story, but a similar situation where I was uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. And, you know, obviously coming from the UK and, you know, we're not used to seeing people with big guns, you know, big rifles and, you know, full body armor and all that type of thing, just patrolling the city. And so I was just looking at that guy and he just looked at him and I saw him put his hand towards his gun that he had holstered. Yeah. He was getting worried because I was looking at him. And then I was, and I, I, you know, he's, normally you'd be in that situation, you'd be a bit worried. But I've, I just thought, what? Well, this guy's a bit of a coward, to be quite frank. Yeah. i have just coming I, as a tourist.
0: I, I don't even know. I don't know how they live their lives like that, to be honest with you. They must be neurotic. They must be totally yeah. neurotic. I mean, the flight I went on from here, my family was the only Muslim family. There were some uh, British people who were Orthodox uh, Hasidic Jews who obviously going for some kind of visit. They're pretty much keeping themselves to themselves on the plane, they're reading their texts and stuff. And then there were, there were a lot of Israeli Jews on there. And, and they're very rude to each other and very rude to the staff on the plane. But the thing that struck me most was that when we were coming into land, they were absolutely petrified. And when the flight actually landed, they spontaneously broke into applause. I've never been on a flight where that's happened before, to be honest with you. I've, I've literally, I've never been on a flight where, where people broke into applause when they land,
1: basically. I've been on yeah. a couple, to be fair. Have boy. you?
0: Okay. Yeah. That was new to me. That was new to me. But, but seriously, I'm, I'm not joking. You know, everything else, I mean, you know, people talking about what happened last week, yeah? Whatever anyone thinks about what happened last week, it showed that a few hundred people showed them that they were not invincible. And uh, that neurosis, that collective neurosis there has just grown. And that neurosis is manifest in the the, the massacre in Gaza at the moment. Yeah. Um, and then finally, that is my final slide with words. This is a hadith of the Prophet narrated by Ibn Asakir. And he mentions that this matter, the khilafa. Will continue after me in Al Madina, which it did in Khilafah Rashidah. Uh, uh, Sayyidina uh, Abu Bakr Uthman and uh, Abu Bakr Omar Uthman were the Khilafah uh, kh- kh- in yeah. Al Madina. And then he said it would move to Asham. And by the time of the Umayyad Khilafa, it was in Asham indeed. And then to Iraq. And the Abbasid Khilafa was indeed in Iraq. And then to the city, which was what they used to call. Constantinople or what is today Istanbul which indeed it was the capital and then to Bayt al-Maqdis which is Jerusalem. This is a prophecy of the Prophet sallallahu Okay so it will go to all these places and it's been in all these places except Beit al-Maqdis. It's never been the capital of the Khilafah. So if it reaches Bayt al-Maqdis he said then it would have reached its natural resting place and no people who remove it will ever get their land back again from it. Uh, and, and, you know, so actually the good news from the Prophet Sallallahu is that one day Bayt al-Maqdis will be the capital city of Khilafah. And and that, that promise of Allah that he is in full control, Prophet Allah's messenger, Allah's in full control of his affairs is something that should really give us some confidence for the future. And uh, I really pray that uh, everyone watching can one day visit this great masjid uh, mentioned in the Qur'an, mentioned in the sunnah as one of the places that we should visit uh, and enjoy the rewards of the prayer. Um, It is a very beautiful masjid uh, for many reasons. But what is most striking is the people. Uh, You fall in love with the people there. Uh, You you feel you are in the sister place of Makkah and Medina. It's got a different flavor. but Very much you feel you're in a sister place of Makkah and Medina. Um, But extraordinary people, uh, extraordinarily kind people, generous people, hospitable people, patient people, reliant on Allah people. Um, And um, I, I really hope if you haven't been there that you get a chance to visit there. In a free, free uh, Jerusalem, Palestine, uh, uh, under the shade of Islam, inshallah.
1: Jazakallah khair. I just wanted to address one. Uh, I'll, I'll jazakallah khair for the presentation, very detailed, mashallah. I just wanted to quickly address this issue, uh, which was about how the the oh, final. Image. Sorry, sorry,
0: uh, sorry to interrupt, Sharif. Yeah. isa has said not al-aqsa isa no 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 please don't 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 make that mistake um, can we That's can what we put my mention. slide up again yeah yeah can we put my slide up again
1: yeah one second
0: yeah so the whole isa, area okay. the whole yeah,
1: area is
0: yeah. laksa yeah yeah so isa yeah it, 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 you you need to understand this there is a huge compound right which this Dome of the Rock sits in the middle of, okay? That whole compound is Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, all right? Yeah. And within that compound, there are several different buildings. The Dome of the Rock is one. The Qibli Masjid is this, this one here, the one I've got my behind me. Yeah, this is called the Qibli Masjid in Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Okay, and then there's a Masjid al Burak and various other buildings and structures
1: in there. But, the Wailing but Wall no. is where the Masjid Burak is. The Wailing Wall. Yes, the Wailing Wall Muslim is the Burak Wall.
0: The Burak yeah. Wall, and then there's a, there's another area underground called Al Marwani, which That's is like right, an yeah. underground complex of of halls, prayer halls, in there. Yeah. So all of this is Al Masjid Al Aqsa. So the Dome of the Rock is part of Al Masjid Al Aqsa. In fact, it's got no different status to any other part of Masjid Al-Aqsa. If you pray in this, you get the reward of praying in Masjid Al-Aqsa. If you pray in the Qibli Mosque, you get the reward of praying in Masjid Al-Aqsa. Um, yeah. So uh, it is true that the um, the Zionists, they revere this part very much. This is the part of the masjid that they think of as their center point. Okay. And I wonder whether these stories that go around saying, oh, this is not Masjid al-Aqsa, this is, I wonder if it's deliberately come from the Zionists because they have a vision of dividing this mosque like they have divided the mosque in Hebron, Khalil. Uh, That mosque was once run by Muslims, once managed by the Muslims under the Islamic authority. And uh, Jews could visit there to visit the graves of the prophets. Now the Zionists have taken the whole thing over. They dictate which past the Muslims can have, which days the Muslims can have it. And that happened by stealth and by force in Hebron. And they have the same vision for Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. I wonder whether they keep saying, oh, this is not Al-Aqsa, this is the Dome of the Rock, so that one day they hope they will take this and they will say, this is yours. And yeah. this is not right. This is the whole, this is all part of a Masjid Al-Aqsa. Yeah, um,
1: it, it's interesting because obviously myself and Abdul Wahid, we've both been to uh, Jerusalem, Alhamdulillah. We've yeah. had that opportunity to go there. And so when you go there, you, you will know the walling around this region is the whole of it is Masjid Al-Aqsa. And interestingly, the reason why the Dome of the Rock was, uh, was built it was during the time of the Umayyad uh, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, I think it was. And when people looked at the skyline of Jerusalem, the old city, they saw churches and steeples and crosses. And so uh, Abdul Malik, basically, he wanted to make the... Because he wanted to show that this is a Muslim city. yeah, It's governed by Muslims, even though other religions were allowed to be there. So he created the uh the dome of the rock as to be the one which is the most striking across the the skyline so anybody who comes and visits it will know that this is a muslim city because this is the most striking so that's why the dome of the rock exists in terms of that particular dome but yeah like just to reiterate that point if you go there you will know the whole region it's a massive area it's like the size of medina mosque masjid effectively maybe just a bit smaller but it's that whole region that is, uh, is Masjid al yeah. not just, yeah, uh, it, not just the it, it mosque is... at the front, the building at the front.
0: Shunrifa, I don't know, I and mean, that's very accurate, what you've just said about abdul Marik bin Ranaan, and, and there's a few things about that that make it quite striking. That And the first thing is that that basic structure of the Dome of the Rock has existed since uh, the time of... Um, uh, uh, which is just literally uh, just shortly after. Um, I've just added another s- picture to the the presentation. Can you load it up again? I don't know why I can't seem to get it up. Let me just. Uh, uh, yeah, one
1: second. Hang on,
0: hang on. Maybe I've got it here. Hang on. Uh, so I want from slides from Google Slides. Add Google Slides. Now. Uh, 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 Let me just see if I can.
1: Yeah, so it's yeah, uh, yeah, we're talking about twelve hundred, isn't it? Twelve hundred years ago. Yeah. The dome of the rock. So yeah, so it has.
0: Unfortunately, it's uh, it's on the presentation, but it's not uh, not loading on the thing again. No worries. But it was it's twelve hundred years ago. It was a very it's a very beautiful building. It's a very amazing building, and I've got this one. I've got. Okay. uh, Let's see if I've got it on there. Oh, yeah there we are put the slide on there we are yeah so yeah. this isa this i think this diagram explains it really but everything inside that orange boundary is al-masjid al-aqsa and this is the dome of the rock and this is the qibli masjid in real life strikingly in real life the qibli masjid is much bigger than the dome of the rock but the way abdul malik has built it is actually the dome of the rock is actually built on an elevated section of the, the mosque so from the skyline, it stands out like it looks much bigger and much more striking uh, because it's kind of I think it's almost like an optical illusion. It's actually bigger on on from a distance than it is in real life. It's not 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 actually a very big not actually a very big building, um, but yeah, I, I I I pray we can all go there and we can all. Um, Inshallah, visit and um, enjoy the benefit of the prayer in peace. Um,
1: Inshallah. JazakAllah khair, Abdul Wahid. Uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, it was a very detailed uh, presentation. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, I think there was a lot of people watching it today and they stayed watching it throughout the whole of the presentation as well. Alhamdulillah. So it was, it was really good. Yeah. I think it's something that we need to... Really appreciate and understand because part of what we do on Thought Adventure Podcasts, obviously, it's a lot more intellectual and maybe uh, to a certain extent, you know, talking about atheism, etc., and academic uh, and liberalism. But this, these types of times, we need to sort of really understand some of these subject areas in depth, understand it because you know these things are uh, you know fundamentally important because the political realities today, if we just want to be pawns of it then, you know, we just react to events. But if we want to be people who can affect change, then we have to educate ourselves. And one of the ways of educating ourselves is educating history. I think, uh, I can't remember who it said, but the famous saying goes, whoever doesn't learn from their history will endlessly repeat it. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. we want to break that cycle, inshallah. Mm-hmm. So really appreciate that. Uh, hopefully, inshallah, everybody in the audience really enjoyed that. I couldn't get through all the comments. I'd have loved to read them out. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it a detailed comment. But shizukhla khair for everybody there watching this. Um, any final words that you want to say, Abdu'l-Wahid? Anything that's uh, happening uh, in the next few days or so?
0: So, uh, of course, I think I think whatever little bits and snippets you, you, you picked up, please, please, please try and rebut the propaganda. Pre- please, rebutting the propaganda doesn't just mean on social media and stuff. It means there's a lot of fair-minded, open-minded people out there that, like I say, they just think there's a conflict going on between people and it's been going on for hundreds of years and what can you do? No, it's really important we educate people that there is a that there is a different story there. So do that. The other thing I will say, I'll give a quick, quick plug, if I may, uh, next Saturday um, on the uh, 21st of October, I'm going to be, inshallah, at two embassies in London the Egyptian embassy and the Turkish embassy in the afternoon as part of a protest. And the protest is really to say that, you know what, somebody, somebody capable with armies needs to go and rescue these people in Gaza and liberate that land. So uh, I I hope, inshallah, if any of you can come,
1: please do. Yeah, that's taking place in London. Uh, That'll be next Saturday, inshallah. Uh, uh, so if uh, we'll send a link maybe to Abdul Wahid's uh, Twitter feed uh, or Twitter page, I don't know what they call it now, Yeah, but his Twitter, so inshallah you can contact him there. Abdul Wahid is also featured on Blogging Theology, alhamdulillah we had Paul Williams in the background watching today as well, uh, so if you want to watch more of uh, Abdul Wahid you can also go to Blogging Theology where he's featured on there a few times with various presentations, Uh, Again JazakAllah khair Um, You know Appreciate your Your discussion Actually This is the second time You've been uh, on our show Actually So I think so
0: Yeah I think I was Yeah yeah, Yeah. Once before A while back That's right That's right
1: Alhamdulillah Uh, So JazakAllah khair Uh, Abdul Wahid uh, I'm gonna give salams And then close the stream Alhamdulillah alaykum as-salam Wa rahmatullahi Wa barakatuh Take care everyone